0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone and
1: welcome to today's event hosted by the RSA. My name is Pragya Garral, I'll be your chair for today and I am delighted to be joined by Laura Bates. Laura is a Sunday Times best-selling author and the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura has also written several non-fiction books, including Everyday Sexism and Men Who Hate Women, and writes regularly for The Guardian and The Telegraph, among other publications. A new, new book from Laura, Fix the System, Not the Women, has recently joined that list of publications and will be the subject of a conversation today. Welcome, Laura.
0: Thank you so much. Hello,
1: everyone. I'm really excited to be talking about this book because um, As we um, talk about gender bias and sexism and misogyny, um, these conversations are often focused so much on making the women accountable or responsible for what's going on, how to address this, how to change their behavior. And um, Laura's work relates closely to mine in terms of how we talk about gender bias and misogyny in society. and um, I would love to love to start the conversation, Laura, with, um, with your, uh, the system that you talk about, the systemic uh, biases. Um, and you break down the system into five institutions, the schools, policing, politics, media, and criminal justice. And I am curious to know how and why did you come up with these five institutions? What prompted you to consider these as the five main institutions in your book?
0: I think for me, it was really important to recognize that those five institutions are the ones that have such an impact on our lives, on the foundations of our society, on the experiences that we have, but also that they are five institutions that are very, very closely interlinked. Mm -hmm. And that was really vital for people, I think, to recognize that when we talk about what systemic change would look like, We are not ever just talking about one institution and actually changing one institution doesn't necessarily have any effect if we don't change others when they're so closely interlinked. So, you know, for example, if you want to talk about systemic um, injustice within policing, for example, institutional racism and misogyny in policing, you think, how do we change that? How do we tackle that on a grand scale? And really, you need political action to do that. So you turn to politics. But where there are issues within politics, you really need kind of media pressure to help force politicians into action. So then the media comes into play. And of course, all of this comes up from an education system that is Creating the kind of norms and the underlying biases and assumptions that are pervading the rest of the systems and supposedly you would hope that the criminal justice system might provide a kind of uh, end of the line sort of backstop we are taught to believe that it is some kind of safety net and so every one of these systems is really closely interlinked you can't tackle one without being able to rely on another and so if there are institutional problems at play in each system then we really have to kind of work to fix all of them at the same time if we want to make a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that is such an important point that when we are considering these systems, none of them are located in isolation. They they work together and and it is important consideration that you also mentioned in your book is about how a lot of these systems are rooted in patriarchy. So if if our systems and structures are rooted in patriarchy, they are kind of sort of interlinked. Um, And so gender injustice is rooted within the patriarchal systems. how do you think, how do you define patriarchy on a systemic level? And how do you think it benefits the people who
0: operate within this system? So I think what we're seeing within each of these institutions is that they're institutions that because we kind of think of them as a bedrock of our society, there's a tendency to think of them as infallible. There's a tendency to think of them as kind of perfect because we're so used to them pro- providing the kind of framework of our lives, I think. And I think what that fails to recognize is that these are systems of privilege. They are systems that have been created by and for extremely privileged white men and created really as the preserve of those men and, and to provide a function that protects and benefits those white men. And you can really Really see that reflected in the institutions today. So, when I talk about institutional misogyny and what that patriarchy looks like in practice within systems in the book, I've devised a kind of a test um, of four different points that an institution needs to meet to be considered institutionally misogynistic. So, the first is that there should be gender imbalance within the institution. So, that might, for example, look like the fact that women are just six out of our 23 cabinet ministers and a third of MPs. It might be that. Um, they're outnumbered two to one in the Met Police, or it might be in terms of a pay gap or a power imbalance within the institution. The second is whether women within that system are facing um, injustice, so whether they're facing sexual harassment, for example. Um, So, for example, the fact that 72% of female teachers say they experience misogyny at work. Um, or the fact that um, a third of girls say that they experience sexual assault whilst they're at school. The third is if there are uh, policies in place to tackle that gender imbalance and those issues and whether those policies are working effectively. So, for example, you would say that that isn't the case in an institution like the Met Police, where over 2,000 officers have been accused of sexual misconduct in the four years up to 2020 alone, and where over half of Met officers found guilty of sexual misconduct keep their jobs, or just one in 18 officers in the Met accused of sexual assault ever face official proceedings as a result. And then the fourth point is whether that institutional misogyny within the system itself has an external gendered impact. So for example, the external impact in that case being the fact that just 1.4% of rapes reported to the police in this country results in a charge or summons, or the external impact of a heavily white male dominated government and cabinet making policy decisions in the COVID pandemic that saw hugely gendered impacts at play. The fact that mothers were twice as likely to lose their jobs as fathers, for example, or the huge spike in domestic abuse following the imposition of lockdowns. So we're not talking about a few bad apples. We're talking about a system where a culture of misogyny is so pervasive that it not only creates institutional rot within that system, but also goes on to have an external impact on the lives of everybody who is governed and affected by that institution.
1: And these are quite shocking statistics in itself. And these are just like the tip of the iceberg really. Um, And often I think we, we, Um, see these data, we see these things happening but we just think, as you said, they're just a few bad apples, or if often some of the initiatives can be quite tokenistic. So yes. organizations can stop at having a gender balance. So if they think there's a gender balance in the organization, they've addressed misogyny or sexism or gender bias in some way. And as you also mentioned in your book, and as we know, these things can become such a status quo that we don't challenge them often, we just accept them. So how do you, how do you think we can do more to Make these visible within our society because they become so invisible, or they are visible, but we just accept them as the norm.
0: Yes, that's so true. We're so used to it being this way that it's hard to even get people to recognise that there's a problem. I think the first step is to move away from this rhetoric of bad apples and isolated incidents. And it's an extremely popular technique that is used to try and dissuade us to distract us from institutional problems because it's much easier for institutions to say, oh, there's just a few bad apples that need to be weeded out, but generally things are fine than it is for them to acknowledge that systemic root and branch reform is needed. So the first step, I think, is recognising, acknowledging that there is a systemic problem. So in the Met Police, for example, where we were repeatedly told that Wayne Cousins, who raped and murdered Sarah Everard, was a a badden, you know, an aberration, somebody nobody could have seen coming. The reality, of course, was that he was nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues, that he'd been reported three times for indecent exposure, which had it been taken seriously enough to prevent him continuing as a serving officer might have saved Sarah's life. If we look at the case of the officer who took photographs of the dead bodies of Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman in a Wembley park after they'd been murdered, they shared those photographs with a WhatsApp group containing 41 other officers. So this idea that it's a few bad apples is just unacceptable rhetoric. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And that's true elsewhere as well. The business secretary recently, for example, was deployed onto mainstream media shows to describe the epidemic of sexual harassment in Parliament as a result of a few bad apples. But the reality is that 56 of our MPs are currently under investigation for sexual misconduct, which amounts to almost a tenth of our elected representatives. So when the problem reaches that scale, I think we have to reject the presentation of it as A few aberrations, a few isolated incidents and say this is so clearly a systemic issue and therefore only systemic reform can tackle it. We need that acknowledgement from those in positions of power before we can move forward. We can't continue to be fobbed off with this excuse of, oh, it's just one or two. It doesn't really say anything about the system because so clearly it does.
1: And um, we know the systemic hierarchies are built on how history or the legacies of uh, biases that have perpetuated in our society as well. And it benefits people who are at the top of these hierarchies and who hold the status. So it benefits them when they say that these are just a few bad people because toppling the whole hierarchical system would also disadvantage them in some way. Um, And we know from research that actually people who are at the top of the hierarchy um, do not acknowledge these biases or these injustices um, as much as the people who are being disadvantaged by this or are being marginalized. And I was really intrigued by in your book when you mentioned that all women have a list of some sort. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that A little bit.
0: Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, it it, it can't be a kind of coincidence that the men these systems elevate to the greatest positions of power tend to be ones who themselves perpetuate and reinforce these particular forms of prejudice. You've got Donald Trump talking about grabbing women by the pussy and then becoming president. You've got a man accused of sexual assault being appointed to the Supreme Court. Our own prime minister, who has said that you should vote for his party to make your wife's breasts grow bigger, uh, who has described Muslim women as looking like letterboxes and bank robbers, um, who has said that if a woman tries to give you advice in the workplace, you should pat her on the bottom and send her on her way. You know, these are issues that we should be acknowledging when men in positions of power have not only held these beliefs, but have, have broadcast them so openly. That matters. That's significant. And the list I write about in the book is one that I think would be so alien to men like them, but for every woman, it is so depressingly familiar. They, our lists are likely to be very different. Some of them will be intermingled with racism, with homophobia, with transphobia, with ageism, ableism, but they are essentially trailing lists of the experiences we have had since childhood of systemic oppression that we have been encouraged not to think of as systemic oppression. So it ranges from being catcalled, being made to feel unsafe in the street, um, the kind of minor sexist comments that are made to us at school, comments about maths being hard for girls, comments about going to university to get your MRS degree, the experiences that you might have had in the workplace with customers saying things that made you feel uncomfortable, but you didn't feel able to retort, um, experiences of, of being a child and looking at a toy that you like in the toy shop but seeing that it's under a big sign that says boys toys and you learn that science isn't for you being a boy picking up a doll and the experience of kind of hearing your brother told oh no that's not a toy that's appropriate for you you know that idea that women are expected to be caregivers from such a young age I think we are so used to dismissing our lists that for many of us we don't think of them as a list we think of them as isolated incidents and Even then, we don't necessarily acknowledge those incidents because our whole lives we've been told, I know you're overreacting. You've got the wrong end of the stick. It's just boys being boys. He didn't mean it like that. I'm sure it wasn't because you were a woman. Um, You know, you should take it as a compliment. It was just a joke. Why don't you lighten up? I'd love it if someone said something like that to me. Well, hang on a minute. What were you wearing? Had you led him on? Was it your fault? Are you just, you know, creating more of a thing out of this than it really was? And so we learn to doubt and disbelieve ourselves. So it was important for me with this book to write about the power of reclaiming our lists and recognizing them not as isolated incidents, not as incidents that we were silly enough to cause or you know not to see for what they really were, but as evidence of systemic oppression and the impact that that's had on our lives.
1: And that is uh, so, I think would hold true for so many women because from a young age, you feel, you are responsible for some of the things that have happened to you. If you'd acted in a different way, if you only you hadn't done this, if only you hadn't gone out in the dark, or if only you hadn't walked alone, if you hadn't been so brave or rebellious or stubborn or outspoken. And I think in the workplace, especially, a lot of these things can be passed off as just banter or a joke or as a norm. And you just start seeing them as a norm that others can take it. Why can't I? There must be something problematic with me, or maybe I'm broken, or maybe I'm just oversensitive. And we ignore some of these microaggressions in the workplace and these discriminations, which are often, as you talk about the the locker room banter, the WhatsApp groups, the things that they just normalize, talking about joking on behalf of women's bodies. and I wonder how can we really hold people responsible for these microaggressions? This is a question that I'm asked so often, but how do we talk about this without making us look like we are being sensitive? And we know from research that when people, it's kind of a double jeopardy because we we think that we are being um, facing microaggressions And the anxiety of not knowing how to react about it or whether we are overreacting is is a double uh, kind of a problem because we think that if we talk about it, it could impact a career or maybe we aren't a good fit for this workplace. And that leads to mental health problems, insomnia, anxiety, all those kinds of things, sleeplessness. So what do you think we could do to address some of these things in our society in our workplaces in particular?
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. There is this fear that if I raise this, I'll be seen as a troublemaker, I'll be seen as overreacting, and that fear is well-founded. We know that when women experience workplace sexual harassment, for example, which over half of all women and two-thirds of young women do... When they report it to their employer, three quarters of women say nothing changes and 16% on top of that say they're treated worse or they lose their jobs as a result. So it's right that women fear speaking up about these things because they do face negative repercussions and workplaces don't deal with it well. So I think it's time to shift the... Um, The responsibility for tackling it away from women themselves, because I've lost count of how many times you're asked, how should women respond to this stuff in the workplace? What should they do? And onto employers instead to take this seriously, to carry out training with their staff that makes it clear that we can't define this stuff as banter and jokes anymore, Um, to make it clear that when we're talking about sexual harassment, even if it's something that they might sort of write off as boys being boys, and to make it clear that it has repercussions, and then to follow through and to actually you know put those in place I think that there is an opportunity here for men to disrupt the normalization of low level sexism in the workplace, because when women respond to it, they are so often seen as uptight or overreacting or ball breakers, whereas men have a sort of social currency that we don't have because of that patriarchal system that they have an opportunity to disrupt it in other men without paying the same cost in terms of the cost to their career that women do. So it's really for men to speak up and say, that's not funny, that's not something to joke about. That wasn't okay. And that doesn't necessarily have to look like a big, scary confrontation in front of everybody. It might be a quiet conversation with a mate. It might be checking in with a woman that's experienced something and saying, I noticed that and I wanted to ask, would you like me to report it? Would you like me to support you in any way? You know, asking what she wants. There will be things that men can do in these situations if they take notice and recognize it as their responsibility not to turn a blind eye. There was a great story I heard recently, for example, about a woman who was experiencing exactly these particular kinds of microaggressions. She was relatively new to the company. And in almost every meeting, she was being asked to make the coffee and take the notes. And she felt she was being sidelined and perceived in almost a secretarial role, which wasn't her job. And one of her male peers who joined the company at the same time found that he was being picked for big projects and being kind of looked at for promotion. And he knew how frustrated she was with this, but he also knew that she didn't want to complain because she thought that it would be seen as such a minor thing and she'd face negative repercussions. And he felt trapped because he wasn't senior enough at the company to kind of take action. He couldn't complain because she didn't want to. He didn't want to report it over her objections. But he realized actually there was one thing in his power to do, and he started turning up at those meetings a few minutes early and making the coffee and he started taking the notes. And it made a big difference to her career without damaging his. So there are ways in which each of us can disrupt that normalization if we're prepared to make the effort and to think this is everybody's problem. You don't have to be directly involved in the situation to, to choose to take action.
1: Yeah, and that's a great story about how to be an ally without actually speaking on behalf of somebody else. And I think first, if we acknowledge these hierarchies exist in a society, we also acknowledge that due to our position in this hierarchy, we have certain privileges and we can leverage those privilege, what you call social currency, to open up the space for people who might be lower down in the hierarchy and who might be more vulnerable to these microaggressions or injustices and who might not have the space to talk about it. So it's about opening up the space for other people to understand, okay, this is actually a problem. I'm not just being oversensitive or just creating a platform where people can voice the injustices that they've faced and the impact of them. Um, And it is a matter of education, isn't it? Um, That's how schools are really linked to it because we have to start early because we know that these gender norms become embedded in our society very early on. Um, some of the work I've done with schools, we find that by the time that children at eight or nine years old, they start believing in these gender norms about how boys are better at maths or football and girls are better at creative subjects. And that disadvantages both men and women. So I think it is, it is as you say, starting early. And it is thinking that these all these institutions are very much interlinked. What else do you think we could do at schools to actually address these?
0: I think in schools, um, there are two different kind of issues and they're very much part of the same thing. Part of it is tackling this in a kind of clear way. So talking about gender inequality and gender stereotypes and the impact it has on children of all genders, educating young people about sexual consent and about relationships and about online literacy and recognizing that not everything that they read online for example, is to be trusted, um, debunking some of those kind of anti-feminist myths that are often very ingrained amongst young people. So that's a kind of very direct way Tackling it in schools, making sure that we're talking about this issue particularly. But I also think that schools sometimes miss a trick in not recognizing that what's also required is a kind of whole school approach. So recognizing that kind of a tick box of the odd assembly here or there, or tackling this a few times within the confines of PSHE lessons, doesn't necessarily change the culture of an institution. And it won't necessarily work if children are having a lesson on Monday that teaches them about sexual consent, but on Wednesday, there's a whole school assembly where the pupils are brought in to be told that the girls are dressing like harlots and shouldn't have their skirts so short which is a true story from a school I visited once so I think it's also about really making sure that the messaging is reiterated across the structure of the organization is sexual harassment taken seriously is sexual violence properly recorded recorded um are for example all of the authors that the students are studying in literature old dead white men and could that be redressed who are the voices coming in to speak to young people and is there diversity in the voices that they're hearing and the role models that they're seeing um what's the dress code like and is it a dress code that Um, perhaps unconsciously or without meaning to reiterate societal kind of shaming of girls and suggest that girls are responsible for boys behavior there was a school in liverpool for example recently where boys were taking photographs up girls skirts on a glass staircase which i guarantee was designed by a man and the response of the school was to tell the girls that they needed to come in wearing shorts under their skirts and not to talk to the boys about sexual harassment what they were doing was illegal you know under upskirting legislation And yet that school really reinforced to its pupils the idea that girls are responsible for protecting themselves from this stuff. And that message becomes ingrained so early. I spoke recently to a group of 13 year old pupils and I was asking them how their lives would be different if they were a different gender to start a conversation about stereotypes. And the boys were talking about different sports and clothing that they would wear, recognizing how their lives were shaped in some ways by stereotypes. But one of the girls put her hand up and said, if I was a boy, I wouldn't be scared all the time and she talked about walking home from hockey practice in the winter with her stick gripped in her fingers and waiting to take a more circuitous route home so that she could walk with a friend and so on. So these lessons that we learn about it being women's responsibility to protect themselves, they start so early and school has a a huge potential to play a positive part in deconstructing rather than reinforcing those messages.
1: Yeah, I think while you were talking earlier, I was thinking about how much of women's girls' lives are shaped by fear, about fear of, something happening to us because of what we are doing or the way we are not acting or acting. And I think it it goes back to these stereotypes, these archaic tropes that have persisted through history about how women or girls should be passive and um, calm or nurturing or maternal or all those things, while boys are encouraged to be risk-taking. And even a research with parents who are believed to be egalitarian and and parents and educators have found that both men and women talk to young girls and boys in different ways. And the words that they use are very different. So they use, they treat girls to be more softer. They ask them to be more careful in the playground. They they ask them to uh, play with in a calmer manner. They expect them to play in a calmer manner, while boys are considered and, and encouraged to be risk takers. And that also affects how, how boys perceive themselves and their positions in society. And also, I feel like I think, and the research has shown that when boys are asked to look out for girls or to protect them, it gives them the message that they are stronger, Mm. physically stronger, which means that they can be more aggressive towards women and they can control and overpower them if they want. So I think you're very right about the the messaging that in, in schools, but also in workplaces in any kind of structure has to be very consistent. And these values laid out upfront in all the words and actions and images And adults, especially in schools, have to acknowledge their own implicit biases because they can pass these on as well to the students. Um, I'm very interested in how the, the, what we're talking about here, misogyny and sexism, obviously overlaps a lot with racial discrimination as well. When we talk about racism, I give talks in schools or I talk to them about how racism is addressed. Um, Often teachers and educators say, we don't need to talk about color or we don't need to talk about it because there's no problem in our schools or because our children haven't mentioned anything but we know that that children even when they don't mention these things they are thinking about it they are making assumptions they are conforming to stereotypes because of their in-group out-group associations but also we often treat gender discrimination and racial discrimination as two very different things but they are obviously interlinked um, how do you how do you think we can address both of them in a more intersectional manner?
0: I think that's exactly right. There is, well, first of all, there's this sense of we don't see colour, so there isn't any problem. And I always think a school which says that there isn't any problem is probably a school with the worst problem, because it's a school where people aren't able to speak up when they're experiencing it. Um, It doesn't help anyone to stick your head in the sand and pretend that there isn't an issue. And to suggest that there won't be issues when schools are part of the wider climate that we live in, which we know um, is rife with, with racism, as well as with misogyny and homophobia and so on. Shh. <laughs> is just to deny the lived experiences of those students. And lived experience, I think, is a very important concept when we're talking about recognizing the overlaps between these forms of inequality, because in our society, we we keep them so separate. We have Black History Month here and International Women's Day there, and we have a Disability Commission over here, and we'll have a consultation about ageism here. And of course, what separating them out in that way does is completely ignore the experiences of those who live at the intersections of one or more of those forms of prejudice, which means that any solutions are automatically kind of failing because they will leave behind people who, who live there at those intersections. You can see that very clearly, I think, in both in terms of people's lived experiences of their lists. So the lists that people share with the Everyday Sexism Project, which are so often intermingled. It's not one day I walk down the street and experience sexism and on a different day, homophobia. It's I'm out in the street with my female partner and men are following us asking if they can join in or videotape us. It's a disabled woman being told to do a pole dance around her walking stick. It's an Asian woman on campus with her university boyfriend when people start shouting at him, asking if she's a male or a bride. It's a black woman waiting to give the conference keynote speech but being interrupted by people asking if she can show them to the bathroom or bring them refreshments because they assume she's a member of staff at the venue. And in any one of those cases, you cannot separate out the misogyny from the racism or the ableism or the homophobia because they are entwined. And of course, they're cumulative as well. They create this this, um, aggravated impact. For example, the fact that Diana Abbott receives over half of all the abuse sent to female politicians on social media. So it's really important to recognize that because if we don't recognize the intersection of prejudice, then there won't be an intersectional approach in our solutions. So for example, if we want to tackle the fact that a quarter of women experience domestic abuse, that's great to want to tackle it, but you have to take into account from the beginning that that number rises to one in two for disabled women. If you want to deal with the fact that there are so few refuge places available and that frontline service funding is a huge problem in this country, we also need to recognize the nuances of the fact that it's by and for services for minoritized women that have suffered the most. The fact that migrant women with no recourse to public funds often get no help from those agencies at all because of the hostile environment Policy, and that while, for example, one in five women in the UK is disabled, only one in 10 refuge spaces are accessible. So all of these complexities should be at the forefront of our minds when we are designing a solution. And too often, I think they're seen as add ons if they're considered at all. So we are either thinking of solutions that work for very privileged white non disabled women, or we're going, well, we'll start with that as the kind of boilerplate solution. And then we'll just bolt on a couple of amendments at the end to think about disabled women and so on. And and that just isn't going to work. It's in all of our interests to, to tackle things in this way because if we put the most vulnerable and those who experience the worst prejudice and inequality at the center of our planning, if we can create a system that works for those people, then it will automatically be a system that works for everybody else. You know, whereas if we create a system that works for the most privileged, then others will be left behind. But it's difficult to get people to take that into account and to acknowledge it in a world that wants to separate these things out as siloed problems.
1: Yeah, because it's simpler to do that, and it's easier to do that, and it often, as you say, some of these solutions are often very tokenistic, and so you find the minimum cost solution, and these templates are created, which are just cut and paste on on top of things, rather than taking into consideration that all of us have multiple identities, and we face privileges, but also bias and discrimination, according to the intersection of those identities. Um, It was interesting, I was... On radio once and after 10 minutes of talking about intersectionality, I was asked, so do you think Diana Abbott faces more discrimination than a white working class boy from council estate? And I just shook my head in despair because we often, media but also politicians, I think reduce these issues to very kind of simplistic binary divides rather than taking the nuances into consideration. Um, Yeah, I think intersectionality is key to addressing some of these systemic um, issues. Um, I'd like to ask you about the handling of the tragic murder of Sarah Everett in particular. Why do you think was the response from the police and the media so problematic? And what do you think our key institution could have done more to Mm -hmm. actually create more safe spaces for women and to ensure that women feel safer rather than less? after these incidents?
0: Well, I think that Sarah's case was almost a perfect storm because it brought together so many of the different threads of institutional failing, of institutional misogyny. And so it really highlighted these broken systems in a way that hadn't necessarily happened all at once before. Um, I mean, partly there was the fact that we all heard her name. There was the fact that she was on the front page of every newspaper for weeks. And it wasn't until that point when people started talking about Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman in relation to Sarah Everard that many people had ever heard their names. So the first part was why we were hearing more about Sarah's case than we had about Black and minority ethnic women whose names we are far less likely to hear in the headlines, the names of older women who, many of whom, were murdered by partners during lockdown, for example. So it was partly that media approach to spotlighting victims, which makes it suggest that these are such isolated incidents. And then there was the police failing, not only in terms of failing to acknowledge institutional misogyny and suggesting that Wayne Cousins was this bad apple, but also in the way in which they policed women after Sarah's death. Police in Clapham knocked on doors and told women in Clapham not to go out on their own at night. And we saw this subsequently again and again. We had a police and crime commissioner who gave interviews saying that Sarah shouldn't have submitted to the false arrest that was used to imprison her and that women should be more streetwise. We later had the police suggesting that women should consider flagging down buses. Um, And so the focus, again, was so much on what silly women did wrong. And uh, we had the kind of political response, which was very tokenistic, CCTV cameras, more undercover police in clubs, sort of really failing to grasp the institutional issues. And later on, the Home Secretary appearing to kind of support the idea of an app that women could download to try and keep themselves safe. So we had this relentless focus on women, women being the problem, what women could do to fix things. And we saw it subsequently after the death of Sabina Nessa when they handed out 200 attack alarms to women in the local area. We saw it after Bobby Ann McLeod's death when the leader of her city council said women shouldn't be putting themselves in compromising positions. And we saw a refusal to acknowledge women's grief and fury as legitimate. So we had the Today programme bringing on a voice, a woman to say that actually women were being hysterical and overreacting. We had the police shutting down the vigil for Sarah Everard by brutally handling women and very ironically saying that women needed to be safer because it was during COVID when other huge scale demonstrations like anti-lockdown ones had gone ahead. So we saw this huge double standard. We saw institutional failings that weren't being acknowledged. And more than anything else, we saw a reiteration of the idea that the solution here was to focus on what women could do to keep themselves safer, that the solution was with women. And even in the public outpouring of grief, that message still shone through because the things that trended online above anything else, were she was just walking home And she did all the right things. And in a similar way, later the following year when Aisling Murphy was murdered, the thing that would trend around the world was she was just going for a run. So even in our grief for these women, there was a subtext of this is particularly tragic. These cases are heartbreaking because they didn't do anything to deserve it. And while I know that nobody intended it when they shared those messages, That was the context in which we grieved, the context of these women are tragic cases because they didn't step outside the lines. And if they had been drunk at two o'clock in the morning, wearing a short skirt, going to meet someone for sex, it wouldn't have been quite so tragic because it would have been that little bit more inevitable. And as a society, that is our starting point, that it is only tragic when women are murdered if they've done everything right that women are responsible for protecting themselves that there is a particular kind of perfect victim who we mourn and the other victims who are kind of asking for it and until we get out of that mindset it's difficult for us to swivel 180 degrees and focus instead not on women and what they've done right or wrong but on these institutions that are responsible for fixing the problem and are instead failing us and if you flip the script you realize how ridiculous it is But we don't really do that. So when the police said women shouldn't be going out at night in Clapham, a lot of people said, well, that's just common sense, isn't it? You know, they're just trying to help. They're just trying to keep women safe. Um, It's not blaming them or anything. It's just, you know, dangerous. Someone's been murdered. It it makes sense. But if we were to have knocked on doors and the police had told men in Clapham, you can't go out at night on your own because a man is murdering people. And we don't know which one of you it so is. You've got to go out and pass. People would have said that was outrageous and ridiculous and a huge constraint to men's lives. We are comfortable with constraining women's lives because of what we perceive to be the inevitability of male violence. But the idea of any kind of uh, blanket solution that imposes restrictions on men, who are the vast majority of perpetrators, is seen as unacceptable.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it, is, it is so much that women's place is in the home. I think a lot of messaging is around making people or women in particular, reminding them where their place is. And if they step outside these boundaries and lines, then it's nobody's but their own fault if they are um, treated in a, in a way, in a violent or harassed or whatever. And I, I do think I completely agree with you. And I noted those messages around the fact that they she was just going for a walk or she was just going for a run because I think um, no matter what a woman is doing, no matter what she's wearing, all all we all of us have a right to be safe, no matter where we are. And I think that's where we come back to the fact that we need to address what is happening. Why are all women not being kept safe? And also interesting, you mentioned how women's emotions are weaponized against them as well, whether they're called hysterical or whether they're called angry. And that means that if they are being hysterical or if they're responding in an angry manner or in emotional manner, then their feelings or their opinions are not valid. And I, I it links to the book that I have coming out in September, where I look at uh, why we weaponize these emotions, how these emotions are gendered and how they've been gendered through history and what is the impact on, on gender bias and racism and all discrimination in our society because of gendering of these emotions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So coming to the end of this, I mean, there's so much we can talk about. There's so much to talk about from your book and related to institutional misogyny, but you close this book by discussing the huge challenge of taking on this. We know that these are huge challenges. It is a long journey. We have to start somewhere. Um, But how how do you think can specific policy changes be leveraged to create these bigger changes? Where do we start? How do we start?
0: Well, one of the things that was really important to me when I wrote the book is that suggestions for sweeping policy reform, which people kind of sort of like to say are impossible and overly complex and and who knows what to do that those suggestions already exist. So really expert organizations with decades of expertise and frontline service experience have suggested changes that might work to support survivors to change these systems for the better. You find them in the reports of rape crisis and women's aid and the Center for Women's Justice and Women for Refugee Women and IMCAN and the Women's Budget Group. Those suggestions are there but we don't necessarily take them on board. We don't necessarily treat them with the respect that they deserve. And so you get politicians throwing out these sort of half-hearted ideas about CCTV cameras. I think if there were an economic crisis, politicians would recognize that they needed to turn to economic think tanks and to academics and experts in the area and to take their advice on board. But there is this kind of deprofessionalization, this kind of dismissal of experts within the women's sector And the reality is that those women are there and that those suggestions have been made. So for example, um, there isn't in every police force in the country, a dedicated rape and sexual assault unit. That is something that could be changed overnight that could make a massive difference. We don't treat domestic violence as a national priority in the same way that we do something like terrorism, which kills far, far fewer people than the 1.6 million women who experience domestic abuse every year and the one woman murdered every three days by a man. We have a justice system that has resulted in the effective decriminalization of rape, and that requires real thought about sweeping reforms that might make a difference. And the Centre for Women's Justice has made suggestions, for example, about uh, judge led rape trials, about looking at how we can change our justice system to support survivors. So these suggestions are there, structural and systemic ones. Um, we just have to listen. We have to be prepared to acknowledge that the problem is systemic and that may require investigation. So, for example, another very clear solution would be a statutory inquiry into institutional misogyny in policing to reveal and recognize the scale of the problem. But we then have to be prepared to take action that matches with that acknowledgement of the 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 fact that this is institutional and therefore only institutional reform is really going to make a difference and that is a long-term project there aren't overnight quick fixes it isn't something that a few rape alarms can fix but it is a worthy investment um, both economically and in terms of our focus and our political will to say we need to fix this from the bottom up and that's going to take time but we need to do it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Change can happen, but it's a long term commitment and these values have to be embedded in these institutions from the start in a very clear upfront manner. Um, Yeah, and it needs commitment from everybody involved and engaged in it. And first of all, I think, as you say, you need an acknowledgement and awareness of this and say that this is the problem and this is how we're going to address it. It's been so wonderful speaking with you, Laura. Um, I could, as I said, we could talk for so much longer, but this is all the time that we have today. So thank you so much for this. And thank you for writing this book, Fix the System, Not the Women. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in to watch. Um, If you'd like to learn more about everything, we've discussed. Laura's new book is out now. Please do go and order this. I think everybody should read it. Um, You can order it from FOILS using the code RSA20 for a special discount. Um, My own book, Hysterical, Exploding the Emotional Gender Gap, is out in September, and you can find a link to pre-order in the live chat right now. Um, Thank you to RSA for hosting this event. Uh, Please do like and subscribe to hear about upcoming events. And to learn more about the work of RSA and how to get involved in the global fellowship community, you can visit the RSA.org. Thank you all for watching. Thank you, Laura,
0: and see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Pragya. And I really want to recommend Pragya's book, which I've had a sneak preview of, Hysterical, and it's absolutely fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.